Last week we looked at the breaking of Saul and his remarkable conversion in verses 1 uh, through 9. And we were mainly focusing on the doctrines of sovereign grace, especially as they're uh, articulated in the acronym TULIP, uh, or as I prefer, ELECT. And uh, it's a wonderful passage for talking about the sovereignty of God in conversion and salvation. Today we're going to be looking at the making of Paul. God not only sovereignly broke down, but He also rebuilds a new man from the ashes. And we're going to be seeing today that God is just as sovereign in this issue of the calling of Saul into ministry as He was in the conversion of Saul. And uh, even though there's a lot of other things I could address from this passage this morning, I want to focus on the issue of calling into ministry. Calling into ministry. There may be some of you here who are uh, called in the future to be elders or are called to be uh, ministers of the, uh, of the gospel. And I want you to think about this passage in light of that uh, future calling. Uh, I don't pretend to have the last word on this subject, but I think it's very important that we think through the issue of calling. Now, those of you who are uh, not called to the ministry, this is not irrelevant to you because you're the ones who are going to be discerning that call, right? And the way in which you vote. And if you are not uh, voting for uh, officers in the future, you still have a part in praying that we would not abandon our calling that God has called us to. And if uh, even a great man like Jeremiah could be tempted to quit his calling because he was sick and tired of the flack that he was receiving, uh, you can be sure that um, uh, ruling elders and uh, teaching elders from time to time are tempted to quit as well. And you need to be in prayer that the Lord would be at work in our, in our lives uh, keeping us from falling. Jeremiah said that uh, there was a time where he was so tired of the reactions that he got to his preaching, his teaching of the Word and bringing it, that he said, I'm not going to speak God's Word anymore. But he couldn't. He couldn't quit. because The Word was like a fire within him and it just had to come out. And in the same way, you can be in prayer that uh, those who are called to the ministry, uh, that God would be irresistibly at work in their lives, keeping them, even if they're tempted to quit, keeping them uh, uh, following the calling that God has given. And so really, this passage is relevant to all of us, and I really urge you not to turn off your mind simply because you're not called to the ministry. I believe that in America especially, we are living in a time of real crisis with regard to this issue of pastoral ministry. Uh, we're living in a time of crisis because there are many people who do not honor the calling that God has put upon uh, ministers of the gospel as they ought. But we're also living in a crisis because those who go into the ministry many times disregard this aspect of God's calling. James Dobson says that 60% of pastors leave the ministry before they retire, long before they retire, because they just cannot hack it any longer. And uh, for whatever reason, it's one of many indicators that we're living in a time of pastoral crisis in America. Uh, PCA pastor Mike Ross says that if those statistics are true, quote, then we need to face this fact. The vast majority of these dropouts were never called to ministry if the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, Romans 11, verse 29. Now, that in itself is an intriguing statement. What does that mean? The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, how does that factor into the discussion of the ministry? Well, it means at least, I think, that we can't just choose this as a career and then later on drop out of it. 
Uh, it means at least that. In the Reform Magazine Banner of Truth, Dr. Uh, Campbell from the Free Church of Scotland said this, It seems that the concept of a call to the ministry has fallen on hard times. A recent survey conducted by Affinity, the Evangelical Church Partnership Organization, engaged with 400 ministers between the ages of 21 and 40. Of these, 30% said they were confused over what constitutes a call, and only 46% of them, less than half, said that they had felt a special call to the ministry. Now, I'll be the first to admit that there is controversy on this subject of calling, even on whether there is such a thing as a subjective calling that can be sensed or that can be felt where God is impelling us uh, into the ministry. But I stand in a long Reformed tradition when I say that without an immediate call of the Holy Spirit upon our souls, if we go into ministry, we are running when we have not been sent. The Presbyterian writer James Henley Thornwell said, that a supernatural conviction of duty wrought by the immediate agency of the Holy Ghost is an essential element in the evidence of a true vocation or calling to the ministry seems to us to be the clear and authoritative doctrine of the Scriptures. Men are not led to the pastoral office as they are induced to select other professions of life. They are drawn as a sinner is drawn to Christ by a mighty, invincible work of the Spirit. The call of God never fails to be convincing. And that is my position uh, as well. Now, it's important to realize right off the bat that it is not my position that all pastors are going to have a vision like Paul had. Uh, hear me on this. It is not my position that all ruling elders and all uh, teaching elders are going to have a vision, you know, that they are called to the ministry. In fact, if you look at the other 11 apostles, even they did not have a vision like Paul did. And yet they were just as irresistibly drawn into the ministry as Paul was. And the points that I'm going to be drawing out, summarizing from this passage, uh, definitely can be describing uh, their call to the ministry. Down through history, Reformed writers have repeatedly used the call of the Apostle Paul into ministry as a paradigm for all ministers being called into, the, into office. And you might question that because you might say, now wait a shake. Aren't apostles very unique? Aren't they special? And I would say, absolutely. They are special and uh, quite different than our ministries are. And yet what I want to demonstrate is that the extraordinary offices and the ordinary offices all receive the same kind of call. Now, let me distinguish between the extraordinary. Extraordinary offices were those offices like apostle and prophet where they brought the inspired revelation of God to the people. Okay, they, they were uh, speaking um, uh, in an inspired way. Ordinary offices were not, did not have that, and they were for all time. The, the, um, the apostles and prophets continue to speak to us through the Word. They continue to be the foundation uh, for the church even now. So that's the distinction between, uh, between those two. But it's not just the church that sends these people. Christ Himself sends them on their mission even before the church recognizes that call. R. L. Dabney says, without a call to the ministry, a sermon degenerates into simply a speech without the authority and without the power of God behind it. <clears throat> if you look at your outlines, you'll see under point number one that there are five orders of ministry in the New Testament that have this special, unique calling of God 
that is quite distinct from other kinds of vocations or jobs. You'll find all five of these in the book of Acts, but I do want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. In one verse, all five offices are listed. These are the officers that God has given to the church. Ephesians 4.11, speaking of Jesus, it says, And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. I want you to notice three things from this passage. First, I want you to notice that Christ Himself gives all of these officers to the church. Okay? They don't volunteer, though they are to recognize that God has called them. The church does not choose, uh, though the church is responsible to recognize whom God has called. But the church may not put into office those whom God has not called. <clears throat> uh, just by analogy, you can think of David, whom God called to a different office in the Old Testament. And it was years before Israel recognized that David was called by God and they voted to make him king. Okay? But what they were doing was recognizing God's call. God's call upon his life preceded their vote, preceded their recognition. Okay? It was an immediate call upon his soul uh, into office. It was not mediated through Israel. But he couldn't become king until they confirmed the call, right? And that's part of God's paradigm. Uh, but my point is the call itself is given by God and is simply recognized by the church. And so that word himself there emphasizes the fact this is the choice of Christ. No one should be in any of those five offices unless Christ has given him. Second, notice that there is, uh, even though there is a difference in what each office does, the difference is not in the giving. Okay? The variable is in the ministry not in the call. For example, the apostles and prophets were the, uh, the, the, the foundation of the church. Chapter 2, verse 20, I think makes that very clear. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so the content of their ministry is quite different from the content of the ministry of an evangelist or of a pastor or of a teacher. Okay, Their, their content is quite different. We, we still have these apostles, as I mentioned, and the prophets speaking to us through the Scripture and so their ministry is quite different than mine would be. But the giving of them to the church is not the difference. And James Henley Thornwell and many others have pointed out that this giving by Christ of these officers to the church is their call to the ministry. The church can accept or reject the ministry, but the call is given immediately. That's as opposed to immediately through the mediation of the church. It's given immediately to the soul. The variable is not with the calling. The variable is with the ministry. Third, now let me point out that the distinction between pastors and teachers is the same distinction you'll find in the Old and the New Testaments between the ruling elder and the teaching elder. Okay? Uh, when we eventually get to Acts chapter 20, we'll see that he calls the elders of the church and he calls them shepherds. Well, the word shepherd is exactly the same word here for pastor. And so Rodney is a pastor in the church. And so there is a distinction between the two and there is an overlap between the two ministries. But the primary work of the ruling elder is shepherding. The primary work of the teaching elder is teaching. Okay? Otherwise, Paul would not have distinguished between pastors and teachers. But this verse also supports the PCA position that eldership is one group or one office with two different orders. Uh, recent grammarians have shown that the Granville Sharp rule cannot be applied to Ephesians 4, verse 11. 
Uh, it is a different structure of Greek that is here. It's a very odd Greek uh, that is here. But in the past, in the 1900s, there was a period of time where there, it was popular for some people to say, oh, maybe the Granville Sharp rule appears here, and shepherds slash teachers, it's the same gift. And uh, recently, they have discovered, as they've done more study of Greek, that that's an impossibility. And so what many people have done is they've gone to the other extreme and they've said, well, they're two totally separate offices. But uh, most grammarians nowadays point out that the odd grammar here links the two officers together under the word some, but distinguishes them with the word and, the Greek word chi. In other words, pastors and teachers, they're two separate entities, but they're within the, uh, uh, the, 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 the same grouping. And so we say they share the office of elder, but they're two different orders. So, there are different officers. These are the five kinds of officers that you will find in the New Testament. And you will find in the New Testament, every one of these officers is directly called by God into the ministry. And then the church later recognizes God's call on their lives. And so, let me just quickly hurry through some examples. And we'll start with the extraordinary offices. Romans 1.1, called to be an apostle. Acts 13.2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Luke 11.49, I will send them prophets and apostles. And so both apostles and prophets were sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. I've just given three examples here. There's 65 examples in the New Testament where prophets are said to be sent, raised up, uh, called by God, um, given to the church, and that they dare not go unless they are sent. Okay, that's God's calling. Now, what I'm wanting to point out is that in both the Old and the New Testament, God calls, He sends, and He raises ordinary officers as well. He uses exactly the same language. And I'll give you an example, first of all, from the Old Testament. The priesthood was an ordinary office. Keep in mind that extraordinary offices were the offices that brought the Scriptures to the people, that brought infallible revelation to the people. The priesthood was not that. Uh, they could maybe be a priest plus a prophet, but the priesthood itself was an ordinary office. And yet, in Hebrews, it says that it required exactly the same calling that Jesus Christ had in His life. Let me read that for you. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men. And down to verse 4, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, and then he goes on to speak of the Father's immediate call upon Christ's life. And elsewhere you'll see it was an immediate call upon Christ's life, and yet Hebrews says it's the same call that the priests had in the Old Testament. Okay? And that without that call, they dared not go into office. No man dared take this unto himself. Well, you'll find the same of the ruling elders in the Old Testament. They were ordinary officers, sometimes called elders, sometimes called shepherds. Jeremiah 3.15 says, I will give you shepherds according to my heart. And then he rebukes others who were shepherds not according to his heart. Ezekiel does the same. Jeremiah chapters 49 and 50 speaks of these shepherds as being chosen by God and appointed by God. God directly sends them. Acts 20, verse 28, has Paul talking to the elders of the church. They're called elders. 
And he says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. It's not the church that made them overseers. It was the Holy Spirit who made them overseers over the church. And so the church recognizes and confirms that call. So ruling elders have an immediate call of God upon their souls. He sends forth teachers as well. Speaking of what would happen after His resurrection, Jesus said, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Matthew 23, verse 34. The wise men were the ruling elders. The scribes were the teaching elders, two separate officers. And yet He says both of them are going to be sent in exactly the same way that the prophets were sent by Christ. There's no distinction on the sending there. We're going to give more uh, verses as we go through this outline, but I think that's enough of a background that we can dive now into Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verses... We're just going to focus... We'll go a little bit further, but we'll focus mainly on verses uh, 10 through 19. Verse 10, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Here I am, Lord. Now we can see throughout this this passage, uh, not just this verse, but later on, that God is sovereign in His giving of calls. God is the one who takes initiative. Now I'll let you study it on your own. But if you look at the parallel passage in Acts 26, 14-18, where Paul describes this event, what you'll see is that God had already given him a detailed call before Ananias came. And Ananias gives him the same words as a confirmation of his call. So he had already had that earlier. Ananias confirmed it. He did not give it. Secondly, verse 10 shows that there was no apostolic succession from um, Peter. Some people make a big deal of that, apostolic succession. You don't find that here. Um, God used an ordinary disciple to confirm this call to Paul. Verse 10 says, a certain disciple. Now, we're not told if he was an officer or if he was a lay uh, person, but he was definitely not one of the apostles. Notice, too, that he receives this in Damascus. He did not receive it in Jerusalem, so you can't say, okay, it's because he's in holy ground or he's within the church. Now, this is totally outside of the state of Israel that he was given this call. Verse 15 indicates God chooses Saul. He says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. Now, when Paul looks back to this time in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, he says, God had already put him into the ministry. He says, putting me into the ministry. It was not the church that put Paul into the ministry. God did. That's God's prerogative. And that's why Jesus says we need to be praying that God, the Lord of the harvest, would send forth laborers into his harvest. We don't pray to the church and say, hey, come on, get some more people. We look to the Lord to raise up these workers for the harvest. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. This is the pattern. Throughout the New Testament period of harvest, God sends forth these laborers. Acts 20, verse 28 says, The ordinary office of elder is one in which the Holy Spirit Himself makes them overseers. And so the point is, God doesn't tag His okay onto people whom the church selects the church is supposed to select those whom God has already called into the ministry. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you can no more send yourself into the pulpit than you can send yourself to China as an official ambassador from the U.S. 
A gospel minister must be God-called. You see what he's saying there? He's saying an ordinary American citizen could go to China and he could be talking with people about all of the things that are in, in the United States as an unofficial uh, person, but he can't pretend to be speaking on the United States' behalf. He's not an ambassador. An ambassador actually represents the United States of America. And the word preaching is a technical word that's used of ambassadors who are heralding something on behalf of someone who has been sent. It's different than a brother-to-brother -brother kind of an exhortation that is given. Fifth, notice that this was not a hallucination, as some people claim. Uh, this was not wishful thinking of an over-anxious person. This was not auto-suggestion. Uh, and there are several reasons. First, the identical call that God had given to Saul earlier is now given to Ananias, a person who has not even met Saul. He's very skeptical that Saul's even got a genuine conversion. I mean, he questions the call himself, right? And yet God insists. No, nope, he is called to the ministry. And then finally, this was not a career decision. There are so many people who enter the ministry because they think, you know, it'd be a kind of cool job to uh, take on. There are ruling elders who want to become ruling elders because they think this would be uh, something with prestige. But throughout this passage, you see, it is God who called Saul and Saul would have been disobedient if he did not go. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Those who are truly called to God, and there's going to be different capacities, different kinds of ministries, but those who are truly called of God to go are going to find this compulsion that they have to minister. They can't get away from this calling of the Lord. God does not let them off the hook. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, fought the tendency in Anglican churches to just treat this as a career decision. And he said, none but he who made the world can make a minister of the gospel. Albert Moeller, a Reformed scholar, credits a, a lack of calling to some of the disastrous results in the ministry here in America. And he says that none of the following are legitimate proofs of your calling. So if you're thinking, you know, I might want to go into the ministry and these are some of the reasons why you think you should go into the ministry. Here, uh, he says, these are not sufficient motives. Ambition to be noticed, to prove yourself or to make a difference. Confidence that you could do well in the ministry. Compassion for hurting people. Isn't everybody supposed to have compassion for hurting people? It's not just pastors. Fluency in public speaking. Knowledge of the Bible. Failure at all other types of work. <laughs> That's what some people say, well, I can't do anything else, so I might as well go to be a pastor. Belief that ministry would be the best means to an easy life, study, and intellectual pursuits or wealth. Boy, are you going to be surprised. <laughs> Acquiescence to the expectation of a parent. There's some parents who push and push and push. I want you to be a minister. And God has not called this person. And they have nothing but frustration in the ministry because they're trying to run when God has not sent them. Or acquiescence to the selfish opinion of others. Conviction that the church needs you. Wow, that's a dangerous reason to go into the ministry because the church needs me. He said this, Do not enter the ministry if one of these is your main motivation. You must be called. Mike Ross Glenn Durham's former pastor goes further and he says this, the ministry is a lazy man's dream and ambitious man's nightmare and a godly man's vision. It's often hard at first to tell the difference between the three. A man ought to listen to Jesus Christ the caller in this sacred calling. 
No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9.62 Nor is he fit for the ministry of that kingdom. So, if you can do anything other than pastor, I suggest you try it. In fact, even if you can't do anything but pastor, try something else for a season. For once you grab hold of the sacred plow, there can be no looking back. And I would agree. When God's sovereign call is upon your life, you cannot look back. You cannot because God's Spirit will be impelling you forward. This is, by the way, the reason why in the PCA, when a pastor steps down from the ministry, he comes under church discipline. And the reason for that is he has, if he stepped down from the ministry, he has either falsely entered the ministry pretending to have a call when he has not had a call, in which case he is subject to discipline, or he is abandoning God's call when he should not abandon God's call. It's a serious thing to be a pastor. You will come under church discipline in the PCA if you abandon the ministry and God is not called. Either way, you're in trouble. So the, the point is, be serious. Be, be really seeking the heart of the Lord. Is this a call from God? Sure, they may have abilities. Sure, they may... Uh, have compassion for others, but there's a, all kinds of ministries we can do without being in the pastoral ministry. And I've tried to talk many a person out of following, uh, out of going into the ministry because they have not had a call upon God uh, upon their life. They've got other motives for entering the ministry, and this is why point number three is so important. Point three is that this call was bathed in prayer. According to Acts 26, Paul was already given the call, as I've mentioned earlier, uh, before he saw Ananias. And when he received that call, Saul was no doubt shaken to his foundations. It made him cry out to the Lord for help. Take a look at verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. Ministry that is entered into without prayer is a dangerous thing because it probably indicates this person doesn't have the foggiest notion what is involved in ministry. Uh, He thinks he can accomplish it in the strength that he already has rather than crying out to the Lord. Later in this book, you're going to see that officers were selected uh, for any office, ruling elder or teaching elder or uh, prophet or apostle, any of those fivefold offices. He said they were only selected after prayer and fasting. And Paul has been engaged in prayer and fasting for three days here. He's weak from hunger. This is why Paul begged the people, Brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. He knew he could not fulfill his high calling without, without God's strength. And if you're wrestling with the sense of call in your life, I've got eight tests, biblical tests, by which you can judge whether or not this is a call from God. And I would be happy to give that to you in private. The fourth major point that I want to address is that a call to ministry requires complete consecration. I don't think it was necessarily a very pleasant thing for Paul to realize God's calling him to be an apostle. If you look at verse 16, you'll see God is quite blunt with him here. It says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God did not want him going into the ministry blind. He wanted him to be fully aware of what he was going into, and that is that the ministry can be extremely tough. He's going to have to put his all on the altar in order to follow God. Now, this issue of consecration, I think, is where many 
uh, ruling elders and many teaching elders have fallen flat on their face. They have not put all on the altar before the Lord. And uh, what I've done in your outline, I've tried to break down this consecration into a, a few subpoints. First of all, it involves obedience, not personal gratification. The first words out of Paul's mouth in verse 6 are, Lord, what do you want me to do? Shows that his heart is now aligned in a right direction. And then... Um, God's response was, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Uh, verses 15 through 16 are definitely making it clear that this is not a calling for Paul's own personal gratification. And people who enter the ministry in order for personal gain or for money, attention, fame, self-esteem, or whatever are going to be disappointed. In fact, they're probably going to be crushed in their ministry because Scripture says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And what do they have? They've got a false hope. <laughs> they don't have realistic expectations, and so their hope is going to be dashed down to the ground. They're going to find themselves crushed uh, in their ministry. The ministry is not fun. Your whole life is open to inspection and criticism. Everybody knows about your budget. They know everything about you. It's like you're living in a glass house, right? Uh, you have numerous critiques from armchair critics and every church has its experts that know exactly how things ought to go. And God expects you as a minister to be humble in your reception of these criticisms. And He expects you not to get bitter when people stab you in the back or let you down or do other things. And yet, you know what? If your calling is from God, you're going to be able to have joy in those circumstances. You're going to have a sense of fulfillment because your sense of calling does not come from people your sense of calling comes from the Lord and it sustains you. Without this sense of calling, people will bail out of ministry. It becomes so, so difficult for them. I think uh, it can be beautifully summed up in Romans 14, 7-8. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now, that really should be for every believer, right? But it is especially true of a person who was called into the ministry. We need to have that motive. And when you guys pray for us as officers, pray that this motive would be maintained in us because we can start off with a good motive and end up becoming embittered of soul and lose this motive of the gospel ministry. Have you ever wondered why it is that people are motivated to go to the mission field and face incredible difficulties and dangers and many times without any dividends for years and years in this life? There's nothing from this life that can explain why they have that. It is this impulsion of the Holy Spirit driving them forward into their ministry. It's got to be a God-centered motive. Secondly, consecration involves faithfulness, not worldly success. His goal, according to verse 15, was to bear the name of Christ. A pursuit of success has made many a pastor puffed up in pride, and it's also made many a pastor, for the same reason, go down in flames. But if we have a desire to be faithful to God, no matter what the results may be, we're going to have what it takes to weather the storms. Think about the call of Isaiah to the ministry. God told him, you know, nobody's going to listen to anything you say. You're going to go on. They're going to have blind eyes. They're going to have deaf ears. How would you like that as your call to ministry? 
And yet Isaiah was not crushed because he knew all he had to do was to be faithful to God. That's where his calling came from. And as he sought to be faithful to God, he was sustained in his ministry. Third, it involves service to others, not self-service. Verse 15 says that he was called to serve before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And this is one of the things I petition you to pray for your elders, that we would have servants' hearts, that we would not be self-serving. That's what our ministry needs to be about. And yet, many ministers, it seems as if the servant's heart is completely absent. Sixth. No. Fourth. Don't want to skip over too fast, do I? Consecration involves a willingness to endure suffering rather than seeking comfort and applause. Jesus speaks of how many things He must suffer. And a strong sense of the calling of God upon your life can enable you to endure. Uh, Many people say that ministry falls or stands on three things. A sense of calling character, and competencies. And you could think of those as three legs of a stool. If any one of those three is missing, that stool of ministry is going to fall over. Calling, character, and competencies. You can have um, a, 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 a sense of calling in your life, and you can have character, but if you don't have competencies, nobody's going to follow you, right? You're not going to be able to minister in their lives. So competencies are very important. But if you have competencies and you have the calling of God upon your life, but you have not developed character, your ministry could go down in flames. Your, uh, everything could go down in flames. Why? Because of moral failings that come out of a lack of character. But if you have strong competencies and you've got strong character, but you lack the calling of God in your life, you're not going to endure. You're not going to have the power. You're not going to have the authority of God in your life. You're going to constantly be tempted to bail out of the ministry, you're not going to be sustained. But um, according to Jesus, you cannot have those three fully developed if you do not have two other components of healthy leadership. And you might think of these as two additional legs on the stool. That's union with God or union with Christ and community. And these are the five C's of healthy leadership. Uh, The union with God, loving God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. And community, loving your neighbor as yourself, on that hangs all of the other commandments, right? And the most important of those is our union with Christ because all of the others flow from that. And so you can think of them as the five C's. There's uh, Christ, there's community, there's character, calling, and competencies. And this deals here, this next point, deals with that need to be having that power that flows from our union with Christ. Verse E. Pointy, I should say, that real consecration to ministry requires spiritual power. Why did Paul need to be filled with the Spirit in verse 17? Well, I believe it's for exactly the same reason that the other apostles need the filling of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. It's empowerment for ministry. This is what Acts 1.8 says. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. Now, just as Paul needed power for ministry... We ministers daily need God's Spirit in our lives or we will become dry and withered on the vine without joy. 
without power in our ministries. And so this is one of the things I ask you. Pray for us that we would have a daily uh, filling of the Holy Spirit. Pray that we would not do our work in our own strength, but we would have the joy of the Holy Spirit, which is our strength. Um, here's how J.D. Phillips paraphrases Ephesians 1, 19-20. He says, How tremendous is the power available to us who believe in God. Sixth, this consecration requires personal preparation. Even the extraordinary office of apostle required three years of intensive preparation. Now, the other 11 had already had three or three and a half years, actually, of uh, uh, leadership development, hadn't they? The next three years for Paul were, was this intensive preparation by the Lord in the wilderness in Arabia. And I'm going to read for you Galatians 1. 15 through 18, which talks about these three years. He says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Paul went immediately up to Arabia. He returned to Damascus for a time. Then he went up to, uh, up to Jerusalem. Now, there's been debate as to exactly when this happened, but if you look at Acts chapter 9, I'll show you the places where they insert these three years. Some people insert uh, the three years right before verse 26. Others place it right before verse 23. Others right before verse 20. And can't be dogmatic on this, but I think it comes right between verses, verse 19a and 19b. Otherwise, I don't see how the immediately of Acts 9 and the immediately of Galatians chapter 1 can be reconciled together. So that's where I place it here. But anyway, Luke skips over these three years, but Paul considered it very, very important as a part of his preparation for ministry. No person should enter the ministry as a novice. It requires a great deal of learning. And I'm going to have to just very quickly breeze through some of the points in, in your outline, um, uh, starting at uh, Roman numeral 5 there. Every call in the Bible requires confirmation. Uh, you see confirmation in this passage in that Ananias recognizes Paul's being set apart. You see further confirmation in that Paul demonstrates that he is indeed gifted. Some people want to enter the ministry, but they have absolutely no gifting. They don't have the abilities, the God-given abilities. Third confirmation that we see is in verse 22. It says, Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He was growing into his calling. God's hand of blessing was very obviously upon what he did. Uh, later, the apostles recognize that Saul is set apart to the apostleship, verses 26 and following. And then in Acts 13, another section of the church recognizes Paul's credentials. And so that's just, you can see exegetically, there's always a confirmation process. The same is true today. Some people um, may believe themselves to be called, but we would say until God moves the hearts of the church, people to recognize that calling. They're without a ministry, and that is really as it should be. There are far too many people who think they're called. They immediately go off into ministry without accountability, without any relationship to the church, and they get themselves into trouble. It's dangerous for them. It's dangerous for the people who are underneath them. There needs to be accountability. 
Even an amazing person like David had to wait before he fulfilled his office. Uh, God's call was not enough. It has to be confirmed by the church. And in your prayer life, you can be praying that all over the world, God would be enabling the church members to be recognizing the difference between one who is called of God, one who is a hireling, and even worse, one who is a wolf in sheep's clothing. But even the issue of hireling, Jesus said that that is not sufficient that a person desires the office of the bishop. That's not sufficient. There are a lot of people who are in it simply because they uh, want to be in it. It's a career for them. That's what a hireling means. In John 10, he calls these shepherds hirelings. And he said, they have no call upon their lives. They're in this because it's a career decision. They're in it for the money or whatever. And Christ says this, guess who lays down his life for the sheep when push comes to shove? It's not the hireling. (laughs) He's out of there. It's the shepherd who is impelled by God to feed these sheep, to protect these sheep. He's the one who is willing to put his life on the line for the sheep. And there are many uh, churches in America who are shepherded by hirelings. They do not have the call of God upon their life. A hireling is simply a person who's on hire. He's an employee. He's not called of God. He's taken it as a career. In fact, God pronounces His anger against shepherds who pretend to represent the Lord, and yet the Lord has not sent them. And so pray. Pray for revival that God would send forth workers in His vineyard. Now, of course, verses 13 through 14 show that there can be obstacles to a person entering into what God has called him to do. And so we're not denying that at all. Uh, There can be all kinds of things that hinder him, that slow him down from entering the ministry. And let's just read verses 13 and 14. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. This was skepticism. Ananias didn't believe that Saul was really converted and he had grave doubts about whether he was called into the ministry. And let me tell you something. There are going to be people who will question your calling and who will resist your calling uh, to ministry. And there may be dry times, times of rejection. Jonathan Edwards, many other people had these uh, dry times of opposition. But a man of God is not going to become bitter over that. He's not going to give up over that. He recognizes he stands before God. God can overcome this opposition and move those circumstances forward. Now, many of the shepherds of old had to earn respect over time. Uh, David David certainly had to uh, overcome a lot of opposition to his entering the call of God. Uh, But in God's providence, it came to pass. And I think we need to be patient. Some young people who have just been converted since God's call upon their life into the ministry. They know God has called them. And so they instantly go into the ministry. And the reason? God's called me. But I think we need to realize we, there needs to be a patience of that personal preparation, just like, like the apostle uh, Saul had to go for three years of intensive preparation in, into uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, we need to be patient uh, as well. I sometimes wondered if I would ever get into the ministry because I had to work for a year or two and then go for a year to school and it seemed like I'd never get there. But God's call was on my life and I persevered through that. Even those waiting times were an important part of the preparation. Of course, I ministered all through that time. Anybody who's called of God is going to be impelled to, to minister. 
He's not going to be waiting to minister, but he's not going to have that authority. He's not going to have that, that office until the church sets them aside. Verse 26, now the church of Jerusalem again expresses skepticism all over again. And it's very important that a man of God not become bitter over that opposition and those hindrances. Seventh, the reason a unique call is given to these fivefold ministries is because these people all represent a different aspect of the Lord's authority. They're representing the Lord. Of course, they've got to be called by God if they're representing God. That makes perfect sense. Uh, they're not just sharing their opinions or their speeches, or at least they shouldn't be. Uh, they are chosen vessels of the Lord and they are required to represent Christ and to bear His name. They must speak with authority. And so if I was simply to preach what you wanted to hear, I would not be representing Christ like I should be. This is one of the reasons why James 3.1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. By the way, when I was doing research for this, um, this sermon, um, I finally clarified in my thinking the distinction that R.L. Dabney and almost all of the older, older Presbyterians made when they said that no one but a teaching elder, no one but a preacher should preach from the pulpit. Uh, they said that uh, uh, lay people can exhort from the public, uh, pulpit, but they cannot preach from the pulpit. And uh, we in the session have been wrestling back and forth. You know, is that a biblical distinction, lay exhortation versus a preacher's preaching? And it's finally gelled in my mind. And I think it is a very biblical distinction because exhortation is a brother to brother sharing of the scripture, which we all must do. Right. We need to counsel one another in the Lord. and It's very profitable uh, venture for people to do. But a preacher, the word for preaching actually is heralding. A preacher stands before the people representing God and he's going to be held accountable by God. He's going to be judged by God. If I'm faithless to God's calling, uh, I will be judged. And so there's an authority uh, relationship. There's a, there's a power of God in the preaching. So what I would encourage you to do from now on, when we have lay people come up here and I'm not here and Glenn's not here, let's make this distinct, distinction that it's lay exhortation, not preaching. Okay. Preaching comes from those who have the call of God upon their lives to preach. So exhortation versus preaching. That's just a side note. Now, having said that, I think that this last point here, see if I've covered everything here, I think I did. Um, this last point is very, very important in order to bring balance. When there is a true call of God upon our lives, there is absolutely no room for pride. Ananias knows that Saul is a great sinner. And in 1 Timothy 1, verses 13 through 17, Paul knows it too. He says he was the chief of sinners. And ministers need to constantly be reminding themselves we cannot stand in and of ourselves. In verse 15, we say he is simply a messenger. God is great and the message is great. But Paul, the messenger, is not great. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul said, if I preach, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying it's not me. I am simply a messenger of the Lord. I have to represent the Lord. And so it would be a mistake for you to be looking to me instead of to the Lord whom I'm the representative of. There's no basis for boasting, he says. 
Verse 16 shows suffering in the line of duty. Well, that's hardly a thing that a prideful man wants to enter into. But a person who is a servant of the Lord, he's willing to do whatever God calls him to do, no matter what the consequences will be. Verse 17, Ananias refers to Saul as brother Saul. There's no reverend, right reverend, uh, your holiness, uh, your most excellent holiness, or any of that other kind of nonsense. No, he's brother Saul, right? Uh, Jesus, didn't he say, let no man call you father, right? Uh, So that is, uh, again, an aspect of humility. The fact that Paul is now superior in authority to Ananias does not mean that he is no longer equal in nature. We're all equal in nature. We all equally have access to the Father. But there are inequalities of authority. Now, on the other hand, the fact that I am equal to you in nature and I am subject to criticism. Of course, the Scripture says when you bring critique, do not rebuke an elder, but entreat him as a father. So there is a difference there, how you would rebuke a brother or how you would entreat uh, somebody that's in authority. The fact that there is an equality of nature does not mean that you can disrespect the office of a teaching elder or of a ruling elder. They are representatives of God. So that hopefully clarifies the, the two things there. And in verse 17, Saul is reminded he can't do anything worthwhile in his own strength. He needs the Holy Spirit. We need to be reminded of that continually. And then God puts Saul into a position where he's forced to need the ministry of the body as a whole. Ananias prays for God's Spirit in Saul's life. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. We elders, we desperately need your prayers. Uh, Paul over and over begged the people, brethren, pray for us. We need your prayers. We're dependent upon the body. He knew where his power came from, from the Lord. And so he said, brethren, intercede for us. We need uh, the Lord's strength. Just like any other believer, Saul was prayed for for healing. There's brothers who come alongside and they pray for me. There's nothing special about me in terms of praying. We pray for one another. Um, He receives baptism in verse 18 and verse 19. It says, so when he had received food and was strengthened, Uh, Others served him. And then finally, he recognizes his need for the body of Christ in verse 19. It says, then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. But even though Saul is dependent upon others, this body life, he recognizes that in Christ, he has everything that he needs for life and godliness. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the soul surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, just because you're a weak jar of clay, because you feel such a weak instrument, does not mean you should resist the call of God upon your life. Of course, we're weak. We all feel inadequate. But if you look to the Lord and his strengthening power, he will enable you to endure in your ministry and to have everything that you need to feed others with. When you look at when God called Moses into ministry, Moses felt utterly inadequate. All ministers do. We just feel so uh, cast upon the Lord. And so Moses came up with all kinds of excuses. He said, look, I stutter. I can't speak very well. People won't believe me. Uh, There's others who could do it better than I could do it. He came up with excuse after excuse as to why he should not be the one fulfilling this role. And what was God's message to him? I will go with you. Gideon, you know, said that uh, there's no way, Lord, I could do what you're calling to me, uh, me to do. And what did God say? I will go with you. You see, the faith of the heroes of the, uh, of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 was not placed in themselves. 
Their faith was placed in the Lord. And so just because you tremble and you're fearful that there's no way you're going to be able to stand up against all of the suffering and all of the troubles that come into the ministry, don't let that keep you away because the Lord has promised if He has called you, He will provide everything you need to be able to sustain you uh, in the ministry. Uh, Though Jesus came in weakness, God's power was made manifest in Him. Though Jeremiah was fearful, very, very timid, and felt inadequate. God used Jeremiah to cast down empires and to build up empires with His Word. And so what we, we don't need strong men in the ministry. What we need is men who are called of God and who are willing to obey that call. Pray that God would raise up such. Amen. Father, thank You for the call that You have placed upon men uh, in America and in other countries. We pray that You would sustain them in this call, that You would hold them up when they feel weak and when they want to abandon the calling You have placed upon their life as Jeremiah was tempted to do. I pray that You would keep them going strong. But Father, I pray that You would open the eyes of people who have not been called into the ministry and yet are running when You have not sent them. And I pray that You would also chase out of the pulpits those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And Father, that You would clothe and adorn the church of Jesus Christ with all of the giftings that she needs to be a powerhouse in this nation and in other nations. I pray that You would prosper the ministry that I am bringing to China and into India to strengthen the leadership in those countries. Father, I pray that it would not be simply Phil Kaiser who is speaking, but that Your anointing would be upon me, that Your empowering, Your filling of the Holy Spirit would be upon me. I pray that You would keep me humble before You. I recognize, Lord, that apart from You, I can do nothing. But I praise You that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so I pray, Father, from this body You would raise up officers who would be able to serve Your church in mighty ways in the future. Not because they are mighty, but because they recognize their weakness and they recognize that You are mighty. And clothed in Jesus Christ, they can accomplish the ministry that You called them to. Raise them up, O Father. And I pray that... uh, Uh, the rest of the people who are not called to ministry would support and encourage and pray for and lift up those who are in office and recognize the difficulties that they go through and be as uh, Aaron and her were, holding up their hands in prayer and in encouragement. And Father, I pray that this church would be strong in doing exploits for You, that as the officers seek to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that there would be an outgoing flow of those rivers of living water that You have promised to those who believe in You. And we'll give You all the praise and all the glory. In Christ's name, Amen.